1: Welcome to No Nonsense, a Tennessee Titans podcast, your place to go for on-demand Titans coverage that is 100% free of the nonsense that we always see in sports talk these days. I'm Luke Worsham, joined by the other two hosts of No Nonsense, uh, Will Lomas, as usual, and Matthias Wadner, back from a multi-week European excursion. Matthias, welcome back and lighten us on how your trip went.
2: Yeah, it's it's good to be back. Uh, I think that that was a pretty good way of describing uh, what I went on. Uh, It it was a good trip. Uh, A little bit too long, but, you know, uh, when you can, you got to get those vacation days in. So it was a good time. Uh, The best part of my entire trip was obviously staying up late uh, for the Titans game and watching them beat the Patriots. So that was awesome, even though. Uh, I couldn't fall asleep until seven a m after because i was I was so hyped from the game, but that was really cool. and, and I, I'm glad to be back. Uh, shout out Luke and Will for holding it down in my absence. what <laughs> What was your favorite part of europe? because the the only
1: foreign country I've ever been to is Italy. And I know you were there for a little while.
2: Yeah, easily, my favorite part was was Rome. but it what, yeah. what an incredible, incredible city. Uh, like you you see pictures, you see videos and all that, but until you actually go, and it's like on every single every single corner, there is a hist- a historical, yeah. ancient monument, and it is just it's amazing.
1: You can follow the show on social media at No Nonsense. That's both Twitter and Facebook. You can also subscribe to or follow the show on whatever your favorite platform is. That way, you get faster and easier access to all of our episodes. And if you're listening on iTunes, we would love it if you would leave us a rating and review. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be recapping the Titans' big win over the New England Patriots in the Wild Card round of the playoffs, and we're going to look ahead to the Titans' upcoming opponent, uh, the Baltimore Ravens, that will happen in the divisional round. To do that, we're going to have uh, two great guests joining us. Teron Davenport will join us a little later on. And uh, before that, we're also going to be joined by Ken McCusick, who is a Ravens fan, and he's a film analyst similar to what um, – it's what Titans Film Room does on Twitter for Titans fans, guys. Let's start with this this Patriots game before we get into anything too detailed. I'll just ask uh, general takeaways
2: from the game. It was it was a little weird. Uh, I I wouldn't say it, it was um, it was a boring game. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was exciting because it, it was a closely contested affair. Uh, uh, although th- there was a, a, a moment, uh, in, in the, I, I don't remember after, um, I, I just, I, I just had a feeling that, that, that the game was kind of going to snowball from us, um, because I think we punted twice in a row. Uh, the, the Patriots got a field goal. They went up 13 to seven, but, but the Titans just came back, um, with a touchdown on the next drive and kind of settled from there. Uh, and then the defense just did a fantastic job, uh, for the rest of the game. Although I, they got helped by, a pretty putrid uh, New England offense that just couldn't get anything going. Uh, so, a lot of people went in this game thinking that the Titans were, were going to beat the Patriots because the Patriots had been, they hadn't really shown anything uh, over the second half of the season, especially losing that game at home to the Dolphins, uh, losing that, that first round by. Um, a lot of people got the feeling that, that the Titans were going to come in and they wouldn't be surprised if they did pull this out. I'm still surprised because I'm a Titans fan and I'm just not, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to beating the Patriots in the playoffs. It, it, it doesn't happen. Uh, and the last time we played the Patriots in the playoffs, we got absolutely destroyed. So I wasn't expecting that, but it was definitely a pleasant surprise. And, uh, I was definitely very happy to see the team, uh, come out with a victory yeah
3: i guess my big takeaway is that if you'd have told me that the score was going to end up 21 to 13 my or i guess yeah there's a 20 to 13 20 is just i think it's 20 because yeah, it we went we went yeah, we went two for point a conversion. Two, yeah. um if you would have told me that at the beginning of the week i would assume the titans would have lost because uh, the Titans have been winning games by scoring a lot of points and allowing a lot of points, but just not as many. Like, we haven't seen the defense do anything, I guess, respectable since uh, the Indianapolis game. So, you know, if, if you would have told me that final score, I would have definitely thought that the Patriots won and they won it the way they wanted to. But, I mean, it was just... It, this was the game that if you haven't watched the Titans all season, this is what you thought the Titans already were. Like run Derrick Henry thirty times a game, play good defense, force the other team to beat you. Don't you know? Don't make any huge mistakes yourself, and then maybe get a turnover or two. But you know, this is not indicative of what we've what we've seen since Tannehill's taken over. So it, it was really weird because. I guess we've just been spoiled by really good offense the last, you know, two months. But this was not what I was expecting from the Titans. But at the end of the day, you know, you win against the Patriots and you still don't play your best game. You know, you'll definitely take that. I mean, at this point, just win games, right? Like, it's not about what the team looks like or if it's sustainable. All you've got to do is win three more and you're champions. So I guess that's kind of
1: my big takeaway. I want to talk about. One of the bigger moments in the game, that being late in the fourth quarter when uh, Mike Vrabel took advantage of that rule loophole to take three penalties in a row and run about two and a half minutes off of the clock. I still disagree with that decision. Like it was smart that he knew the rule. You know, he did. He out Belichicked Belichick, as a lot of people keep saying. I still refuse to believe that it is ever the right decision to give Tom Brady the football with four and a half minutes left, down by one. Vrabel's alternatives were, number one, attempt a 53-yard field goal with Greg Joseph, who has, in three or four weeks on this team, yet to attempt a field goal. Um, and then his other option was to go on fourth and four from the 36-yard line. I think that is what Vrabel should have done. Again, just because it worked doesn't mean it was the right choice, okay? Just because... I don't know, just because I don't get sick by drinking Pepto-Bismol with breakfast doesn't mean that it was a good idea.
3: <laughs> That's so, the reference I was going to use.
1: Yeah, Me too. <laughs> I
2: mean,
1: what, what, what did you guys think about that? Where do you stand now on that?
2: What uh, well, the situation as a whole was, was so dumb, in my in my opinion. I was just watching that, and I'm like, "What? What is this, man? This is a this is a that, football. That rule has to be fixed this off season. It's, it's, it's a stupid rule. It's absolutely <laughs> absurd. It probably will get fixed, especially if the Patriots complain about it, which they probably will. Uh, even though they don't, they use that. They've used that before. So yeah, they used yeah, it. Good. Which
1: is the ironic part. They used it against, I believe, the uh, the Jets. Yes.
2: Right. Yes. Yeah. That's what it was. Um. Oh, so I don't know anyway, uh, I thought it it was a bad decision. I, w- I would never give the ball to an elite quarterback Although it's brady that ha- hasn't really been elite this year Um, but in the playoffs he always turns it on so I, I would never give him the ball back and I I was kind of I was getting nervous because we were running a lot of time off the clock, but it's like Okay, so they get the ball with four minutes four and a half minutes left do we not think that they're going to be able to get in the field goal range in in, in four minutes? Uh, that's why, from a process standpoint, I didn't really understand it. Uh, I agree with you on fourth and five, I, I'm going for it. From the 36-yard line, I'm going for it. And it turned out to work, but, I mean, not, not really. Only because the Patriots couldn't get anything going on offense. So. Yeah, and I, uh, I think that's
1: an important point to make is that, you know, Edelman had a very crucial drop on. I don't think it was third down. I think it was a second down play yeah. where he ran basically an out for you know four or five yards, and just Stone Cold dropped the ball past that the was line on that game, right? Yeah, that it was, when- was. And my thinking is, as we were talking about a minute ago, if he catches that ball, we're sitting here doing a season recap instead of a looking ahead yeah. to the next
2: round of the playoffs. And we're we're eviscerating Mike Vrabel, yes, for his decision to not go for it exactly yeah, you know I,
3: I I agree with all this energy like I, I'm kind of the same way, but to me it's this is the same decision as do you go for two in London versus the
1: Chargers last year? Well I didn't think that it's, was a good idea when it happened.
3: Well no but but hear me out is in that game, your momentum was all behind your offense. It was you know everything was going well and your defense was holding. you know in this game, the defense had shut out the Patriots in the second half. The offense looked like they could run it, you know, for another first down if they were given a fresh set of downs. But they figured that the Patriots weren't going to be able to move the ball down the field, especially from what essentially turned out to be the one yard line. Oh no, sorry, this was uh, a different drive. Sorry, uh, but the point the point stands that they hadn't been able to drive the length of the field yet. So yeah, I, I can understand the thinking and. You know, I don't like to see Deion Lewis go on the field, but that doesn't mean that, you know, Vrabel is going to change his mind because of it. So I disagree with this, but I also think it's kind of consistent with Vrabel tends to lean towards, especially when he's deciding whether to be aggressive or not with uh, what the momentum dictates. Is it, mm-hmm. okay, we're moving the ball really well. Their defense is on their heels. We're going to go for two and try to win this game. Or is it, you know, okay, our defense has shut them out for the entire second half. The last time they really had the ball in a scoring scoring position was our goal line stand, and since then the defense has been great. You know, uh, make them make all the plays they need to and, and score, essentially, and then we'll still get the ball back. So, I... I I don't know. I, I like like you said. It it all looks better in hindsight. I always tend to be more aggressive because if you think aggressive and the coach thinks conservative and he doesn't go for it, then you're always right in hindsight. So like four and four, seven, fourth and four sounds great to go on now because you know in theory we make it, but in there's also a chance that in reality we don't. And that gives momentum
1: to the Patriots. But, but, but f- get, for me, Tom Brady from the 35 is no different than Tom Brady from the 9. And that's the difference is the field position and the well, time. I mean, I mean, you say that, but the first play from the 9 was a
3: 20-yard play. I mean, if the first yard was a 20-yard play— I think you just made first my first point. Five, well, that, but that's what I'm saying is that but they stopped. They didn't drive the rest of the field. So yeah, the, okay. their first play, you know, got them to the twenty-nine yard line. That play would have gotten them to the Titans' forty-five yard line. It's a one-point game at that point. All you've got to do is kick a field goal to go ahead. Yeah. So, and you know that the Titans don't feel comfortable with Greg Joseph kicking. So, I mean, they, at that point, they don't. You're like, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's, it's baffling, but so again, I'm not defending what he's what he did, and it's easier to put into context like this with yeah. a few days perspective and with the Titans winning. But at the same time, I think that's, that's just the decision that, Frey I think he's very much a creature of instant. And for all the stuff that I, I think Mike Keith has said it a couple of times that he's a very analytics based coach. That's not true.
1: Um, <laughs> why? Which- well, he, he's analytics based in that what he does oftentimes ends up being the right analytic. Choice Gentry Estes from the Tennessean wrote a column about that. He, like, talked to this analytics firm, and they're like, most of Vrabel's decisions, and almost all, are analytically sound. And I
3: believe that that's the same firm that, uh, like, does those coaches' rankings. And he's, like, 15th of 32. So it's not, I mean, it's like he's number one. It's not like he's number 32. But that, then again, like, I think he wants to be aggressive. I, I think we've seen that from him forever he wants to be aggressive and if he feels like he has momentum he'll do it but you know maybe if he feels that Derrick Henry's starting to get worn out he's on his 400th carry of the game we're not going to put Deion Lewis in everybody's going to try to stop the run like are we going to try to bootleg like maybe he's like okay I would just rather trust my defense than trust all those variables to play out but I I don't know like I'm sure there'll be another call that I that I just completely hate that Brable does, but that wasn't the most egregious thing I've ever seen him do.
1: I will say this, and I and I want to have this discussion, you know, because I think it's warranted. And I and I tweeted this during the game, you know, we we, we criticize Brable a lot for his decision making. It's deserved criticism most of the time, uh, but but let's not make any bones about the fact that he's a very good football coach. Okay, I mean the the, the fact that he has. This team, where they are right now, yeah, Tannehill has a lot to do with it. Yeah, you know, communication improvements have a lot to do with it. But the fact that Mike Vrabel was able to continue selling his message to this team when they were 2-4 and and looked like they were on the road to maybe 4-12 and if they were lucky, I think says a lot about Vrabel as a coach. And the fact that he was able to have this team as prepared as they were to go into New England and win furthers that idea.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I have my quarrels with him, you know. Yeah. But, um But he's he's a leader, you know. He, he's kind of he's kind of like that classic players' coach that that everyone follows and everyone kind of everyone believes in him and, and his not it not really his system, but I guess his culture, his philosophy, uh, and it, it seems to work. Like I, I mean, we're in the playoffs. We're beating the Patriots. So, something is clearly going right. Uh, and, and not a lot of coaches would would have the would have the capacity to to make a a huge quarterback switch uh, in the middle of a season in order to save a season uh, and, and look where it's gotten us to this point. Even though Tannehill didn't didn't play great in this game, but we wouldn't be in this position if if Rabel hadn't made that decision, uh, which could have completely backfired on him.
3: Yeah, and it also needs to be said that you know the the team that Robinson has drafted John Robinson has drafted is uh, you know incredibly resilient like individuals Uh, and uh, I think I think we tend to put a lot of this on Vrabel but and rightfully so like I I don't necessarily know
1: that he's the best tactician I mean I don't think you can sit here like what always irritates me is when people are like are the Patriots good because of Brady or Belichick it's like no they're both really good that's why it works (laughs) yeah like and and i understand that like
3: it, they have to mesh well and all that but if the titans are 2 and 4 and you have Pac-Man jones on your roster i i don't know that he's getting motivated <laughs> in practice yeah. to get better yeah. like th- there's been several players over the last you know two or three you know general manager terms where they just you just draft guys cuz they look good on film and then you get them in you know Justin Hunter culture jumping from locker room like see, like when he's talking about how he can't practice because he's got a hurt ankle like that sticks out like there's a lot of those guys who just aren't built for this and, and see
1: well you're 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 making one of my fundamental like philosophic football points these people who say culture don't doesn't matter have no idea what they're talking about culture matters an incredible amount yeah I mean. It's why the Patriots can – and I don't know if this
3: is offensive to Patriots fans. It's why they can get by on substandard talent because they're never the That's most – true. It's because like, they've got smart they, football players. Yeah, they will, they've got guys who are so bought in and, like, they believe in the Patriot way, even though everybody says, like, you know, no, that doesn't exist or whatever. I mean, those guys believe in whatever Belichick's selling. And he's yeah. not a rah-rah guy, but those are just the right guys for that locker room. So – I mean, there has to be some secret sauce in there. And, you know, give credit to Robinson and Brabel because they've done a good job identifying it, especially since brabel has been with the Titans. They've done a really good job identifying guys who, even if, like, let's say Saffold, like, even if they struggle at first, can bounce back really well and just, you know, completely flip a season on its head or can, you know, completely change the narrative about themselves. Like, and those guys are hard to find. Like, you don't see those around yeah. the league a lot. So, uh, you know, I, I give credit to both of them. I've been critical of Vrabel and some of his tactical decisions and all that. But uh, the team that he is coached and managed and brought together
1: and led is a good team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're dead on there, Will. We, we've got plenty more topics to get to. We're going to talk about Derrick Henry. We're going to talk a little bit about Harold Landry. Of course, Stop the Nonsense, Teron Davenport. Uh, but first, we're going to uh, join or be joined uh, by, as I mentioned earlier, Ken McCusick, a, uh, a Ravens film analyst. So before he joins us, we're going to play a, a quick 30-second word from one of our sponsors, and then we're going to get into that. Okay, so we are joined now by... Uh, so Titans fans all know who at Titans Film Room is. Uh, our next guest is very much the Baltimore Ravens equivalent of, of Titans Film Room. His name is Ken McCusick. He does a lot of the same stuff with breakdowns. He has a podcast. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for joining the show. We really appreciate it.
4: Anytime, guys.
1: So first, I'll just ask you sort of generally, before we get into any really specific stuff, what are your initial thoughts on this matchup uh, between the Ravens and the Titans? Because I think one thing that we can sort of take away by looking at it is they're two teams, although very different in a lot of ways, they're very similar in terms of their, especially on offense, their dedication to running the ball and, and, I guess, imposing their will on you.
4: Yeah, very similar, both teams. Both teams use a lot of play action. Both teams have... Dangerous receivers. The Ravens happen to be tight ends, and the and the Titans happen to be wide receivers. Uh, both can run the ball effectively. The Ravens do it from a read option basis, which is quite different, and the the uh, Titans run more of zone and and a little bit of power.
2: Hey Ken, uh, this is Matthias here. Uh, it's it's hard to to talk about the Ravens and, and not mention. Lamar Jackson especially considering the season he's having he's, in my opinion he's he's pretty much the unanimous MVP and, and I don't know if there's really much of an argument about it uh, I want to ask you about uh, kind of his improvement what, what do you think has been the biggest change in his game maybe from his rookie season to this year uh, has he really improved this much as a passer maybe from like a field perspective and getting the timing down uh, of an NFL passing game or do you think they've kind of loosened the reins on him a little bit? Because it seemed like last year uh, in that Chargers playoff game, they didn't really let him get going until the end of the game. Do you think uh, they've given him more freedom this year? Uh, and it's kind of, you know, helped him become uh, this incredible passer that a lot of us thought he could be coming out of college.
4: He's went through a tremendous offseason program. I uh, had a quarterback coach. And that guy is gonna get a lot of clients, is all I can say. And he's he's completely changed in over the over the off season. I mean he came to camp, everything was different. The release of the ball was different. The the spiral of the ball was different. His ability to read defenses is at a, a much higher level now. Uh, he reads backs very well, I mean looking for that back shoulder throw, looking for an opportunity to do those sorts of things. Uh, he, he knows how to effectively use play action now. Uh, there's still a bunch of things about him on the field. He's not doing which he can still grow into I think he, he doesn't really use pump fakes very much and they'd be very effective with who he is um, he he Does not have tremendous command of Realigning players to get to the proper spot on the field when he when he wants to change a play So he's not a big audibler. or uh, he but there's so many things and that he improved in over this offseason. It's hard for me to pick just one. The defense reading has been amazing, though, and he's, he, his mobility and the reading that the defenses has made him an amazing red zone quarterback, where most pocket quarterbacks have a relatively small number of route options in the red zone. Jackson has many more.
3: Hey, uh, this is Will. So, one thing I've noticed is the difference I see between. Uh, somebody like Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson is Lamar Jackson is not necessarily run like scramble, 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 then make a play way off script. It's more get outside, and make your reads, if nothing's there, tuck it and run. Is that kind of a fair analysis of where he is and how he feels most comfortable? Yeah, I think that's
4: a fair analysis. And a lot of that goes with what I just said about the red zone. Is that He reestablished, I don't think I really completed the thought, but he reestablishes a spot outside the pocket which doesn't have a lot of men standing with long arms directly in front of him necessarily and allows him many more vectors at which to hit a receiver without throwing a lobbed ball, whether that's a zipper route between the uprights that someone has to go up and get or a fade route or you know, a lot of the normal kind of red zone routes you see. So he's much more dangerous in 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 that regard, uh, and and in terms of Watson, I think the big difference from Jackson is Jackson keeps his eyes down the field. Watson doesn't, and and in all the games where where Watson has taken a big pile of sacks, including the playoff game here and the and the one against the Ravens in Baltimore, basically he gets contained a little bit and gets very uncomfortable being in the Star Wars trash compactor, meaning a slowly compressing pocket on him, mm-hmm. unduly so such that he can't keep his eyes down the field and, and, uh, you know, make good plays.
1: Ken, later on in the show, we're going to have Teron Davenport from ESPN on, and that's a a pre-recorded conversation. And as we were talking earlier, one of our big points in our conversation was the organizational commitment that the Ravens have made to Lamar Jackson. But it goes beyond just scheme and, and okay, let's hire Greg Roman. It's their personnel, too, because, you know, a lot of teams can't run – four verticals out of 13 personnel, but because the Ravens have built their team to be what they are with guys like Hayden Hurst and, and Mark Andrews and obviously having Hollywood Brown to take the top off on the outside, this is not just a ground and pound, we're going to run eye formation and hope for the best. This is very, very exotic and I think lethal is probably a good
4: word to describe it. It's it's a good passing offense, that's for sure. It's not just a good running offense, and and you know they were the first team to have 200 yards per game of both. They probably prefer to run the game and and very much have been leading and wanting to control the clock. And honestly, not really having any difficulty running the ball even when they're in that position, which is very unusual by the way in the NFL. Fourth quarter teams in the fourth quarter that are winning teams, they may run the ball a lot, but they don't necessarily run the ball effectively because it becomes harder when they when the other defense is packing it in. Uh, it's it is a good passing offense. You know, Jackson had 36 touchdowns, six interceptions. But what I'm seeing more from him as a passer is a willingness to fire the ball into into fairly tight windows. Uh, he's made some aggressive throws this year. Uh, not tremendous. He's not tremendously aggressive, but he's beaten his his expected completion percentage by a little bit, and he's far beaten his expected yards based on whether or not he's getting ample time and space in the pocket.
2: Uh, I, I want to stick with the offense a little bit, but focus on on, on another player, one who's injured right now, Mark Ingram. Uh, they signed him to a pretty big contract um, in, in the offseason, and, and he's been really good. At, uh, he's one of my favorite running backs in the league. Uh, do you think him being out would be you know, that big uh, uh, of a deal or that big of an issue for their offense? Because guess, Gus Edwards, um, he's actually, he's had uh, uh, in his er- young career, he's had one of the best starts of any running back in terms of yards per carry and success rate uh, with his rushes. Um, but do you think there would be that much of a drop-off in the running game if Ingram does miss this game with Edwards and Justice Hill in there? Uh, or do you think they'd miss Ingram more in the passing game because he's such a capable receiver? Uh, they'd
4: miss him both places. they miss him in, in as a receiver because Edwards just isn't the same kind of receiver as as uh, Ingram is. He's been much more effective and elusive in the open field. The other thing I would, I would make very clear is that while yards per carry might be similar for Ingram and for Edwards, they're not equivalent backs because Ingram is far better with the mesh point. And that's so central to what the Ravens are trying to do with the read option is He's Ingram knows how to delay it properly. He doesn't mind if Lamar comes out very late uh, with the ball. And Lamar effectively, and why the Ravens offense is so successful, is that read option, they allow that edge defender right, right into the backfield unblocked. Because they say that's Lamar Jackson's guy to beat directly. And that means they really have significant blocking advantages. Because your your best run defender on that edge has been taken away. But that's dependent on, on Mark Ingram being able to release that football exactly when Lamar wants it. And Lamar reads leverage better than any quarterback I've ever seen. Much better than RG3, who is directly comparable on the same team and is running a lot of the same plays. But he reads that edge defender's leverage and it's almost like he can slow the game down to, you know, you, on your DVR where you could pause it and then hit fast forward and go forward like one frame at a time. He can always do that at a 30th of a second and then he sees okay, that's the point, pull it and go. and. People talk about hitting Lamar Jackson in that situation. Good luck. It's like trying to hit a young Ali. If you're if you're if you're Sonny Liston, you can't get near him. Now, it's a uh, you know, it's a, it's it's funny. I, 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 we have Teron on actually later later today, but he's going to whiteboard for us how he thinks the Titans can stop the scheme. But we've seen a lot of, of teams try and scheme it up. It's just it's it's a very difficult problem to solve. Let's put it that way.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that real quick before I ask my next question. But you know, you watch him kind of ride that mesh point, and it's not always the same pull. It's always a little bit different. And it, even when you've got like let's say Nick Bosa head to head with him, he just makes him miss. I mean, it just it's phenomenal how even when everybody else does their job on defense, it doesn't matter because he has such. I don't want to call it weird. It's just such a unique motion where he can just stop and start. He's so long. It's 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 incredibly hard to figure out the right defense for. And, you know, Teron does have kind of an idea of that. Um, one question I have is if you have watched any of the Titans at all, I think the best defensive formation they have is more of a 5-2 front where they have – Simmons and Daquan Jones and Casey and whatever two edges they want out there mainly because they've played Simmons head up on the tight end before and just had him mashed down I think particularly against the Colts they did this but they had him just mash down the tight end and there was I mean it would just shut down all the power because it created this big clogged hole where the pulling guards were supposed to get around one idea I've had and I want you to let me know if you think this would be effective at all or not is if the Titans put their strongest player on, you know, whatever the tight inside and I didn't and played him basically like a strong end and just had him mash down that line and then had a free rusher. I know we've seen that before, but is that, you know, I guess at least schematically an effective way to kind of take away the read option again in
4: theory. I mean, it, it might take it away on one side, so you have that possibility. Uh, also, the Ravens, when they're running the read option, often run it with two receivers and a V formation in the back in the backfield. So they have two tight ends on either a tight end on either side of Jackson and Ingram in the pistol, and they can even motion to that when they get to the line of scrimmage if they don't like the look. So you know, all of the all of the times you whiteboard up how you're going to beat Jackson. I mean, the Ravens are going to attack your defense as well as they see in in the way that they see it. So they're they're going to attack it with read option, but they're also going to attack it with play action. And so Jackson doesn't have to take his eyes off the backfield like a traditional play action quarterback like Tannehill, let's say. But he just uses a two-handed movement towards the running back and that can freeze linebackers and allow for play action opportunities down the field so yeah you know, there, there are there are a lot of schematic things that the other very good defenses the 49ers and the and uh you know 49ers are the best example probably but even buffalo um have tried to do to stop the ravens and, and just have not been tremendously effective at at figuring out the scheme to beat them when the ravens have have had the def, def uh, sorry offense depressed it's been because of weather, and that's the big fear for this coming weekend.
1: I want to talk a little bit about this Ravens defense, Ken, because I feel like they they don't get enough attention. Uh, you know, I'm not someone that, that watches this team every week. I'm not terribly familiar with, you know, week in and week out, how they're performing. So, so I'll just phrase the question to start as we talk about the defense like this, specifically with the secondary. Is a secondary that features Marlon Humphrey, Marcus Peters, and Earl Thomas, is that as good as that sounds as it is on paper? Because to me, I'd be scared to death about that if I was Ryan Tannehill and and A.J. Brown.
4: Yeah, they're they're very much built back to front, a lot like the Patriots, and teams have to respect that in terms of not wanting to throw into the teeth of the secondary. And a, a lot of that, the first four games or five games of the year before they got Marcus Peters, uh, they they did not have it figured out on the secondary. They had some weak links. They also didn't have Jimmy Smith because he returned from injury. Uh, so it's been the, really a second half thing that this defense has really gelled together, and and all of a sudden you have probably the best secondary in the league, or, or right up there competing with New England for that. Uh, the, the other thing that that they allows them to do is they really do leave. A lot of players on an island. They play a lot of cover zero. They've been blitzing with both safeties. Earl Thomas had never had a sack coming into the season. He's got one and a half, and he had another one or one and a half taken away by penalty. So it's, it's he's all of a sudden become a pass rusher fairly frequently. Chuck Clark, as well, as has done that. So that goes to the Ravens' really big weakness on defense, which is they have to generate all pressure that they can get by scheme. So their secondary is very dependent on their secondary to hold up in coverage. And uh, you know that's a, that's a potential problem. If if I think if you can hold the Ravens off in terms of their pass rush scheme, that's a, that's a way to beat them.
1: And off of that, Ken, how equipped is this defense to handle the load that Derrick Henry is sure to see?
4: How is the defense able? Is the defense like a uh, this Ravens defense is is the first or maybe second? In, in my lifetime as a fan, which it goes back to the beginning of the franchise in 96, that's ever had any any compromises they had to make in terms of stopping the run, and in particular, in versus 11 personnel. So if it, normally, when a team's line up in 11 personnel, that, of course, forces the nickel out of the opposing defense. When you do that, if you have two good inside players, the Ravens have always had those, two great edge setters, and the Ravens have had one or two all the time with Terrell Suggs and Jarrett Johnson and players like that, Rob Burnett, and then great inside linebackers, and the Ravens have had that with Ray Lewis and and whoever else. Um, But they don't really have the top quality players at either the edge the outside linebacker positions or the inside linebacker positions right now. So now they have to make choices, and they have to make schematic compromises to stop the run versus 11 personnel. And I think what we'll see is a lot of what I call jumbo nickel or a three defensive lineman, one inside linebacker nickel, three-three-five nickel in Madden it would be called, uh, against what the Titans present in 11 personnel.
2: What do you think is the best way to attack this defense from from the Titans' perspective? I mean, we could look back uh, at the two games the Ravens lost, where their defense probably didn't play as well as as they should, uh, but they they didn't have Peters at that point. Uh, the The Browns just ran all over them with Nick Chubb, uh, and you would think that means you know just give Derrick Henry the ball thirty times, and maybe something similar will happen. Uh, and then the Chiefs game—that's Mahomes. You, 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 we don't we don't have Mahomes. What do you think exactly? Uh, should be the Titans um, point of point of attack.
4: Well, I mean they're they're a dangerous team no matter what. And I think the best chance for the Titans to win would be a muddy kind of a game that really takes away space from the Ravens offense. So then if you're looking for how should they attack offensively against the Ravens defense, I think you know it'll be a lower scoring game. obviously, I think you know Henry running the ball could be more effective. Uh, how they, how, many, how often they're able to get the Ravens' edge defenders beaten will be a critical uh, element in terms of getting Henry loose and, and running. But the Ravens also will pack it in a little more, and obviously they'll, they'll take more chances with heavier formations to try and stop Henry if that becomes the, the way the game is, is going on. One thing that we've seen from, from uh, Martindale a lot this year is just a remarkable ability to adapt in-game. To when, the, when the run's not getting stopped, he'll make personnel changes, he'll make scheme changes to get it stopped within the half, or series to series, whatever it takes. So I'm expecting the Ravens will start, I believe, in jumbo nickel in this game. I don't think they're going to play out of that BS standard nickel because it hasn't been successful. Um, and and I, I think you're, you're going to be seeing three defensive linemen even when the Ravens are in the nickel um, for the start of this game and in particular when the when the Titans have 11 on the field.
3: Yeah, I heard your uh, conversation with Mike, and y'all, y'all talked about that a lot. I thought that was very interesting, and uh, how the addition of LJ Fort changed things and, and all that. All that I thought that was incredibly insightful, so I'm glad you touched on that. Um, I think, what, in my opinion, what, what's going to decide whether the Titans offense is a 30-point offense or a 14-point offense this week is how they run that stretch zone and that play-action boot off of it, because... So many times uh, there's so much attention gets paid to Derrick Henry on that outside zone and rightfully so, but it just leaves so many guys wide open or it leaves Tannehill enough time to kind of figure out where he wants to get the ball. Let's say to AJ, AJ Brown on like a long developing route. I don't, I don't know how much I see of that this week, just in terms of like how much that'll work. But in, in your opinion, do you think in if that's the look they want to show,
4: what do you think they'll take away first? Okay, so is, is mostly zone block left, naked boot right? Is that what the usual play-action boot for Tannehill is? I haven't really been been watching enough to see if that's the way he usually goes. In, in my head,
3: they usually boot to the left, which sounds crazy because... It does. <laughs> yeah, the, but the the majority of their runs have come zone left, but the most
1: productive runs they've had have come zone right. So I don't know if it's... I, mean, the, I think it, I think the reason it's hard to remember, I feel like it's a pretty good balance because, I mean, Henry has had success running behind both Saffold and behind the rookie Nate Davis. And I, I recall several times where Tannehill has tucked and run off of a naked boot
4: on both sides of the formation. Okay. And if, at least in the Flacco era, and this is the reason I'm going back to Flacco is because I think... Non-mobile quarterbacks, and Tannehill fits in somewhere between Flacco and Jackson, obviously, but that's the entire range of NFL <laughs> quarterbacks there. <laughs> um, but, but Tannehill, uh, uh, if he is booting, is probably does not draw the same sort of attention from the backside edge defender, which is the guy you have to fool in that situation. So if the backside edge defender is not fooled, those plays often have to be thrown either to the short receiver or just even thrown away uh, when you when you're going for that three levels of action off the most traditional zone block left naked boot right play that the Ravens have run twice a twice a game for 15 years prior to Jackson. If you if you uh, uh, if you're doing it to the right, then you got to fool Matthew Judon, and he's the better at understanding what's going on with the football and reading the play. If you go to the left, then then it's uh, you know the the collection of players over there may not be as good. And we
1: really appreciate the time. You've given us some great insight and some really awesome discussion. But before you go, let our listeners know where they can tune in to, uh, to your stuff because I know they'll want to go and listen to that as well leading up to this game.
4: All right. Appreciate it. I'm on filmstudybaltimore.com is the website. There's articles and podcasts. Most of my articles are are focused on two things. One is offensive line scoring. So I do a lot of that. And then also looking at defense and defensive packages, which we kind of got a taste of on on this show. And there's two podcasts a week and and three when we have a Know Your Foe podcast. So this week we have one with Mike Miracles and one with uh, Mike Herndon, that is, and and another with Tron Davenport that we're about to record tonight.
1: Well, Ken, Teron was great with us. Hope he's just as good with you. Thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. Take it easy, guys. Thanks for having me. Okie dokie. So now I want to have a discussion about Harold Landry. Will, are you, are you ready for this? Yeah, of course I am. Because I'm, I'm going to uh, bring the proverbial heat to this discussion. <laughs> okay, bring it. Harold Landry is not very good. Okay, you're wrong, but go ahead. Well, that's that's just... That it was yeah, is I mean, that it like that's he doesn't dollars. make an impact. He doesn't make an impact. I mean, it, there's really not much context for this discussion. Will and I were kind of arguing last yeah, week about this.
3: Yeah, we've had we've had this discussion before, uh, and and I don't know. we you know, I don't know why. Like he's like the second most productive player in the last two years, like from that rookie class and sacks and tackles for loss and solo tackles and all these other stats. Like,
1: I mean, he's very, you can't say things like that. Like he's the best of that rookie class. Like, have you ever seen the all rookie teams that pro football writers puts out? It's always like AJ Brown level guys. And then just a bunch of people who suck and there's no one else. Good.
3: I mean, there's there's more than like 3 good players per draft class like i don't i don't i don't know what
1: so okay so he's not better than Bradley Chubb Bradley Chubb um he is better than Sam Hubbard or Josh Davenport Sweat and like all the other guys like i mean I, don't, I thought Marcus Davenport was good i mean he is he's he's been yeah, solid he's, for the same yeah he's
3: fine he's just not Harold Landry
1: I just think, you know, my, my thing with Landry is, and I heard this on a podcast. I think it was uh, it, it was Buck Rising's podcast that he does. They, they were talking about how Landry, like, is talented, and he produces, but like, his production isn't impressive. Like, if you watched Harold Landry for a season, like, I've watched Harold Landry for 16 games, actually 17 now, and I can't think of, but like, like, he had nine sacks this year. I don't think I could name to you more than maybe two of them. One of them being when uh, Jacoby Brissett was literally lying on the ground and he just touched him down, and that was a quote-unquote sack. And he disappeared for the last, like, five weeks of the season. I, so, okay,
3: um, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this. So, it's like watching a guard. Like, if you yeah. if you look at, like... a a specific like if you look at like sacks given up or if you look at if you watch Landry and you see like how many sacks he got it's like you may end up with a number and like he got nine sacks this year and that's great but it's very little of what he does so Mm -hmm. when you watch him we all know that I hate that they drop him in coverage and they do that there's no there's no positives from that he's not great at it it's not his job they're just as effective when they drop Casey into coverage. Like it, it gives them the same thing. It's a stupid thing. It's a wrinkle. They have zone
1: blitzed a lot this year.
3: Yeah. I mean, they've done whatever they've done this year, but like (laughs) it, like on paper, it's like, look, this circle is here. So you can't complete a pass here, but that's not the reality of how this works, which is why these four man rushes from weird, like zone blitzes and stuff. Don't do anything. Yeah. Uh, So that's my problem with part of the scheme. But there's also a lot of times where he's asked to take on the front side tight end or when he's asked to set the edge on the outside, which is what an edge is supposed to do. Like, yeah, your your first step, not especially if you're not getting blitz, like if nobody's blitzing around you, 95 percent of the time is a step like with your, you know, your back foot like up. And you're supposed to. So if you're on the right side, you're supposed to try to keep your right arm free. And you're supposed to get upfield and force the tackle to square his shoulders against you so that you essentially cut off any sort of outside lane. So what you do when you do that is you either make the the running back bubble around you and get funneled to like the safeties in the corners who should have closed by then, or you make him go inside to where the linebacker should already be. He does that really well. Like, we talked about this before the podcast, but on the third down on the goal line stand, the only reason any of that works, because Rashawn Evans is not fast enough to get all the way to the edge before, I think it was Michelle, before Michelle does. So the only way that works is because Harold Landry gets upfield and stops and shuts down that edge and holds his man, and then you have uh, Jeffrey Simmons on the inside collapsing that way, which left only one gap for uh, the running back to run through, and Rashawn Evans was right there.
1: Let so, me ask you this question. Yeah. Because I see where you're going with this. Yeah. And, and I agree. You're, you're making good points. Would you rather rank these three? Okay. 2019, Harold Landry. Okay. 2017, I think. No, let's 2016. Brian Arakpo. Oh. Brian Arakpo and Derek Morgan. Rank those three.
3: Uh, Derek Morgan last, uh, not not as an offense to him. Just he's never really offered anything consistent as a pass rusher, other than like yeah, a power I get that. Run. Um, so 2016, Arakpo, that was like 10.5 sack Arakpo. Is that right? When he was at yeah, his yeah, good the good Arakpo. That's so weird because you also got like weird, like helmet to helmet penalties from Rackpo that year. Do you remember where it's like he was going so high? I have no memory of that. He would go high on some of his like hits and he would get 15 yard flags. And he also really didn't offer a lot as like somebody who could, if if it was like a screen pass, he wasn't going to get out and make that tackle. Whereas Landry and even Roberson, when he's in, are frequently like, the guys that you see that once the back tries to make a cut, that he makes the tackle. So just in a vacuum, I mean, on this team right now, if I could trade, like, 2016 Brian Arakpo for Landry, I I don't know. I probably would just for the sheer fact that I think sacks are really important. But at the same time, like, of, like, 100% of Brian Arakpo's pass rushes or passing plays were him rushing forward. Like, he didn't have to split up his reps between jamming the tight end and dropping into coverage. So it, it's really not fair for me to say, but it, I will take peek Ryan Ratcliffe versus Landry now.
1: The reason I, br- I bring that up, and, and we can conclude this discussion with this point, I think Landry's a fine player. I'm not saying he's bad or that he's a bust. What I'm saying is that I think that Like because the Titans haven't really ever had a like since Javon Kirst, they have not had a Vaughn Miller, Khalil Mack type of, you know, game changing, you know, Chandler Jones pass rusher. And so I feel like maybe the reason that you're you like Landry so much is it's almost like a by default thing. Like you've almost been like jaded into thinking that this is really good when in reality, like this should just be the general standard for a starting pass rusher.
3: See, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum because I think that we've gotten spooled by talking about names like Von Miller and Khalil Mack and all these guys. I mean, that, like, neither I mean, he had one nine them, sacks
2: this year. It's not like, yeah,
3: I was going to say neither one of them were necessarily as good as Harold Landry this year.
0: Like, we don't hmm. watch them.
3: I mean, I mean we don't watch them. Like, I, I can guarantee y'all haven't paid that much attention to uh, Khalil. No, I watched
1: every Broncos game this season, yeah, all like, 22. Yeah.
3: <laughs> there you go. So Love it's big like,
2: fan of team. Green yeah,
3: years. so it's like, I mean, I know we talk about them because we see them on highlight plays and stuff, and, and yeah. I – it's it's really it's really easy to be infatuated with people you don't have to watch and see their bad plays.
5: <laughs> yeah, uh,
3: but like that's part of like now. Do I think he's as good as like a Ryan Kerrigan or Chandler Jones, who year in and year out for the last four or five years have been dominant? No, like I, I don't think he's a. I don't I don't think he's in the same tier as T.J. Watt, who I think is like I think he and the Boses are probably the best young edges in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know like. I think the only difference between him and a guy like Josh Allen or Yannick Ngakwe maybe is like they're asked to do less things for their team. And like that's why that's why their teams aren't as good. But I, I mean, I think I think that Harold Landry is a very good player. I don't think he's a great player yet, but I think if you gave him a defensive coordinator who asked him to do less and let him focus on what he was good at and kind of help to emphasize him in the defense. I think he would be much more productive than what we've seen the last two years, even though this year he did have nine sacks.
1: We we can close out this, this Landry discussion. I I have plenty of other things I could say, but, but Will, you've certainly altered my view. Like I think that was a, a productive discussion. You, you, you made good points. That's good.
3: I mean, and and you're not the only person that feels that way and we'll have to see going forward. But, you know, think we just got to, like, keep context of, you know, it's hard to compare these guys to other guys who are asked
1: to do very little in their schemes. Before we get to the Tehran interview and then after that, stop the nonsense, I want to talk about Derrick Henry. Uh, he's pretty good, guys. He's uh, he's 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 pretty pretty good. And it was just over a year that on our uh, on our old show, we were talking about how terrible Derrick Henry was because he was really really bad for like the first eight or nine, maybe even ten games last year. Um, now the offensive line is certainly helping him out a lot. They're playing very well. There were times against the Patriots where Derrick was five six yards past the line before he even got touched. Um but this guy's, I mean good luck to the Ravens is all I have to say.
2: Yeah, I mean we we've, we've talked about it at length that that um that we just weren't sold on him. Um he was very tentative uh f- for a lot of his early career. Um but th- this this guy is he's been I don't know if the best running back in the league but at least top 3, top 5. And he's certainly earned himself a sizable payday. And if we don't give it to him, someone will for sure, Uh, because he's a guy that you can completely build your offense around. And it's what we've seen the Titans uh, do for a majority of the season. Uh, It's just it's it's unbelievable to watch him play. And I know he's not a good receiver, but I really think they need to set up a couple of screens for him per game. Uh, I, I know they. Well, sh-
1: and, and on that no he's not a good checkdown receiver. He is not right. a. He's also not a very good like. Route like when Deion right. Lewis was really good, he, he's not that he can catch a screen pass, he can do design things, yeah, but he's not gonna like creatively get open and be an outlet for the quarterback,
2: which is fine because teams aren't really looking, uh, they're, they're, they're not covering him expecting a screen t- to pop up just because yeah, we I don't mean, really run it that often.
1: And John U. Smith can be that like the outlet, creative over the middle mm-hmm. guy,
2: right. Yeah, it, it's just every time. It seems like every time we get Henry some space on a screen pass, or at least a little sliver of space, he, uh, he either takes it to the house or he comes pretty close to taking it to the house. Uh, it, it's really, it, it's really amazing, and the just him moving at that speed at that size is is kind of shocking at times. And uh, watching him run people over is just one of the most beautiful things in football.
3: We can have a more detailed version of this conversation down the road, but yeah, with, with with how how well he's performed, if I had to tell you, you can only pick two of these three free agents to keep. Are you keeping Derek Henry, Jack Conklin, or Logan Ryan?
1: I would keep of those three. I would keep Henry
2: and Conklin. Wow, I would keep
1: Henry and Ryan see. I'm. I'm. I think I keep. Henry, I love Logan Ryan. Don't get me wrong.
3: I think I keep Henry and Conklin. Like I mean, I think I think that's the way it's got. To, like, I, I'm the same way because mm. I just like a pure age standpoint thing. It's like they what It is for me both too. Young guys. Like it's harder to find tackles than corners in the NFL. Just in terms of a, a third like slot Now you won't get somebody as well rounded or who can do all the stuff that Logan Ryan can do. But I mean. How many bad offensive tackles are there that just kill an offense? I mean, that. and then what Derrick Henry has done in just, like, the last six weeks that he's been healthy where he's just been completely unstoppable. I mean, if you can get that guy, and even if for the first 12 games of the season he's only okay or above average, and then he can flip this switch in December and in the playoffs, like – that's such an invaluable piece. But we we can talk more about that down the line, but I just wanted to get y'all's reading right yeah. now.
2: Have you yeah. guys seen like his his winter months stats? The unbelievable. Yeah, Unbelievable. It doesn't make – well, no, it does make sense. It's because everyone's injured on on every single NFL team, and they don't feel yeah. like tackling anyone, especially in cold weather. So now, it does make sense. Ima-
1: imagine this. I was talking about this at the at Titans practice today. The Ravens have another three years of cheap Lamar Jackson.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Derek Henry is going to be a free agent. Could you imagine? <laughs> I don't think he would fit. Like, I don't want to. That's what Ter- I just asked Teron that before we went on the recording, and he said the same thing. He said he thinks Ingram is better for them than Henry would be.
3: Yeah, because of what we've always said is – Henry does not think of himself as a bigger version of Mark Ingram. He thinks of himself as a taller Chris Johnson. Yeah. That he doesn't want to be a guy who lowers his pads and just runs through you unless it's a corner in space. And then he's more than happy to, but like he doesn't really want to meet your linebackers in the middle of, you know, in a five yard alley. So I don't think he would necessarily be the perfect fit for that. But if you could get him to do even a little bit of that, and like or like scheme away for him to get some more open yards before he has to take that hit i mean it would be brutal
2: speaking of chris johnson the titans fans have been blessed with some of the running backs they have been able to watch because this version of derrick henry and the chris johnson of 2008 2009 2010 i mean those are two of the most fun nfl players period to watch over the last 10 years or whatever (laughs) it's been.
1: (laughs) Now let's not act like Titans fans haven't had to pay for that. They had to suffer through the well, years of Bishop Sankey, Sean yeah. Green. Don't you dare bring uh, up Antonio but, Andrews. But I wasn't going to. <laughs> I like Antonio I Andrews.
2: We did get to see Dexter McCluster and it cancels everything. Oh gosh. Show. Oh, that's true. Like
1: that. It that was
2: oh, so
3: what? bad.
1: Dexter McCluster was Dion Lewis before Dion Lewis was, was Dion Lewis. I was going
3: to say <laughs> that's such a good take. I was like, I was like, yo, it's the
1: same person. Just like except McCluster's man. like taller. Than lewis you yeah, like yeah, and yeah, they're
3: like a good pretty good. similar in age i think like you could convince me that Dexter mccluster like got facial reconstructive surgery and shaved his head and that he was deon lewis like <laughs> like with how they run like it's just this weird epiphany i'm having but
2: yeah but mccluster wouldn't have caught that that crucial third down catch on uh it, it w- and- i do i do need to
3: say like credit oh
2: to- my good lord what? I forgot that that happened because they won
1: the draw play on like oh you're talking about the jump pass Can we yeah. talk about the fact that Arthur Smith ran a draw to Deion Lewis on third and oh, ten yeah. the world
3: <laughs> nah man we don't we don't like, talk about that kind of stuff when, that, uh, that was
1: weeks one through six Arthur Smith rearing his head like I'm still here uh I'm
3: pretty sure like I'm not, I don't know like people are so high on Arthur Smith I don't want to offend anybody but like that Arthur Smith is still at least a little bit that guy. The only difference is yeah, well, I yeah. I think Henry is letting him take him out of the game as much. And I, I, I know that because you'll if you watch on the sideline, it's Mike Vrabel is the only person who tells Derek Henry to go in or not go in. Like, Derek Henry just starts running on the field sometimes, and Vrabel will, like, st- like tell him to stop.
2: I noticed makes, that. I noticed if, that in this last year. Yeah,
3: it, so it makes me think that Vrabel has given Henry the green light to say, If you're healthy, we want you on the field, and we'll adjust our play calls to fit that. So go back whenever you're healthy. And like when it's too soon, Vrabel pulls him back out. But Arthur Smith has no decision to make on that. That's that's what looks like it's happening.
1: If it's third down and two or three or four, Henry is always going to be on the field for me, just for the pure threat of him running. uh, There's no
3: reason he shouldn't be on the field. I mean, other than the fact that the human body doesn't
1: last like that, but... Like uh, John Gruden said, what did he say? He said uh, man I want to see the, uh, the GPS miles on that guy. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I just he never well, gets tired. Don't
3: worry, they're they're out there. People talk about miles per hour and all that nonsense. So, oh, yeah. those but you know the, the you can't convince me that if you didn't line up and I've said this before, if you didn't line up Johnny Smith in the backfield or Anybody else who like plays tight end, like if you put game back there, anybody who can block and pass protection and kind of knows what to do, just put them back there instead of Deion Lewis. Like at the very least, they will respect the fact that you might run it successfully with one of them. But I mean,
1: it's it's so just spe- speaking of miles per hour. Our friend Diana Russini had had another tough week last week. What did she uh, say reported now? that she? She reported that the Jaguars fired a, oh, uh, yeah, Marone. And it wasn't even like, you know, I'm hearing or, you know, this might happen. It was, Doug Marone has been informed that he will be fired.
3: After the game.
1: Which objectively, clearly did not happen.
2: Yeah. Man. Wait, so I mean, Doug she... Marone is still the coach of the Jaguars?
1: Yes. Yes. I know, right? What?
2: I know. Uh-huh. Wow. They must
1: really like the culture that he's building there.
3: They hey, time your best players intentionally want to leave or force you to trade them you gotta keep the culture going yeah, how else would you pay Miles Jack 11 million dollars a year it's like
1: it's like Doug Marone turns is like the Richard Matthews inator. Like you, you, remember the Phineas and Ferb show where like the guy would make all the inators. He's the Rashard Matthews inator. He turns everybody into someone who just wants to quit the team and go somewhere else.
3: I am I think, too old for that reference, but I do understand <laughs> what it's what you're saying. You're
1: never too old for Phineas and Ferb.
3: I, I like it. Just wasn't my childhood. There's like a fourteen year gap between you and me. <laughs> I'm at, I'm actually forty two.
2: I think I think the Jaguars are um, they just. Want to reward Doug Marone for getting four net over four yards to carry this season, and yes. turning turning him into a lethal uh, pass catcher out of the backfield. Seventy six, a lethal fullback for five hundred twenty two yards, a whopping six point nine average. Well, nice. you know, he, he made
3: his his pitch to keep his job, and it was, you know, wait till you see what I do with my new two-quarterback offense where I put Foles and Minshew on the field oh, and gosh. then also have uh, <laughs> Leonard Fournette in the backfield. So, you know, he's an innovator. Like, you can't get rid of those kind
2: of guys. Fournette scored three touchdowns this year.
3: Tannehill uh, scored on, more rushing touchdowns than uh On Fournette, 340 touches.
2: Three yeah. touchdowns. Yeah.
1: How many touches does he have?
2: Two sixty five plus seventy six, I think that's two forty something. Oh my I don't know. I can't do math. Yeah. Two sixty five
1: plus seventy
2: six. Yeah. That's
1: 300 three hundred and something. Three three, three forty one. one, sorry. Yeah. Did I say two forty? Let's do math Back live? to the to the Patriots for just a second. <laughs> As I was preparing for for that game, I was looking at stats for the season. Sony Michelle carried the ball over 240 times this year and didn't have a thousand yards because his average was
2: 3.7. Yo, you want to talk about a bad draft eval? I got him wrong. I was completely wrong. I yeah, I was too. I don't. Will, I didn't think he'd be like, like
1: stupendous, him. but I thought he'd at least be like like a, a good he was, someone you maybe center your offense around.
2: I, mean, I, I liked him, like fine, an explosive but... pass catcher at Georgia. Yeah and he that's, doesn't catch passes and he's slow.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is like I think the Patriots just mismanage that situation. Like I think they want him and Rex Burkhead to do the same thing and you know they I, I just I don't understand why they have both of them. Like they should both be kind of the same player where it's like you can be a one-cut like violent kind of upfield running back and then also be like a good receiving back like that that's but what both of their roles should be but yeah uh, it's it's did they, it's a little did they bit draft rough. chubb yeah he was available yeah i was like i, I was like i can't believe i can't believe the browns picked the right or uh, i can't believe they <laughs> <Right. picked laughs> yeah. the wrong georgia running back when they were i mean
1: mm. <sighs> well we, we can talk about the patriots another time because i think they've had some a couple bad drafts in a row Nikhil harry like what anyway um <laughs> Before we get to stop the nonsense, uh, after Titans practice on Tuesday, I caught up with Teron Davenport of ESPN.com, and we talked all about the Ravens, who he used to cover before he went to Philly and then came to Nashville, and uh, we talked about all the ways that they're going to be a tough challenge for the Titans this week. So take a listen, but first, a quick 30-second word from our sponsor. So I don't know how many Titans fans know this about you that you have a history in Baltimore covering this team. Mm-hmm. Obviously a lot different now than when you were there. Enlighten us a little bit. What is your experience with the Ravens and and with coach Harbaugh in particular?
0: It's a lot similar to what we have here as far as what we're able to work with, you know, and watching these coaches the coaches there do a really good job of having drills that transfer to games Uh, coach Bobby Ingram is an awesome coach I believe he's coaching the tight ends now but he coached the receivers when I was there Uh, coach Harbaugh it's just there's a family atmosphere there there is an idea of understanding no matter how dirty it gets that they'll pull pull through so to me, these two organizations are kind of mirror images of each other, and there's no coincidence that you see Ravens on the Titans and former Titans on the Ravens, Brendan Trowett, Heronis uh, Grasso. Those are two good examples here, Kamale Correa, obviously Dean Pease. So there's a lot of similarities. I think just the focus on just playing dirty, muddy football is so similar incorporating the Russian attack, the importance of running the football. I think when you look at the focus on defense, I think there's a little more focus on special teams just because John Harbaugh, that's where he cut his teeth as a special teams coach, and then, and then was a DB coach. He played DB in college also. So a little bit different there, and I mean, you see the results in Justin Tucker, Sam Cook, that, that exchange there, those guys are two of the best in the game. I think Brett Kern is the best punter in the game, so we will get that established. For me,
1: Harbaugh has always been second best only to Belichick. He's someone that I've always been a really big fan love it, love it. of. He runs that organization top to bottom just in, in such a top-tier way. But if this Lamar Jackson experience had not worked out to the level that it was, it seemed like Harbaugh was on the track to being a hot seat guy. Yeah. What, what, where, what are your thoughts on him as a head coach and, and that whole situation?
0: It's insane. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's insane that he was on the track towards being in the hot seat, and you're correct. It, he really was. And then that change was made, and Lamar just added a dynamic part to the offense that wasn't there before. I think Harbaugh as a coach, one of the things I always noticed with him is the focus on detail. During camp when we got to watch full practices, the focus on situational football, you know, two-minute, uh, red zone, Third down, so many different things like that was really huge. But for me with Hardball, and I see it with Ravel too, these are guys that are just, they're easy to like, and they're easy to commit to, you know what I mean? And they both have a really good uh, ability to make those emotional deposits and really have the guys understand that they genuinely love them as people before football players
1: and you know it's interesting because i feel like in recent years head coaching hires have tended towards scheme guys you know we, yeah. we want the next guru whether it be offense or defense but even today two hires by the giants and by the panthers guys who are more in the harbaugh vrabel mold of maybe they're not scheme geniuses but they're leaders of men and they're going to get everybody on the same
0: page i could speak on matt rule because he was in temple at temple and i i covered a bunch of games there And I will definitely say that that commitment that we just talked about with Vrabel and and hardball to the players and the deposits is there with him too. I remember against Notre Dame, sorry to get off track, but it just popped up. I remember against Notre Dame, uh, they had just had a long drive. They got the ball inside the 10 yard line and Matt Rule could tell that the guys were gassed and that they were just exhausted mentally too. Called a timeout, went out there on the field, had him huddle around him, talked to him, they held him to three points. Those are the type of things that, you know, come from having a good connection with your players, a good feel for them. Because he's not out there on the field with them. He has to be able to see and know. So, yeah, Matt Rule is a great hire. Uh, it, it is right along that that line as far as um, that guy that, it, you know, is one of the guys but still separated from them, elevated ab- above them, so to speak, as far as rank.
1: Let's get to Lamar Jackson because he's obviously the the big number one guy in this game. He's on track to be NFL MVP. I don't mm-hmm. think there's much competition for him with that award. Uh, you know, running quarterbacks have sort of come and gone in the league. There was the big RG3 Russell Wilson Kaepernick year back mm-hmm. in 2012. Every now and then someone else will pop up and then they kind of fade away. What is it about Lamar that makes him different than an RG3 or a Kaepernick? Because none of those guys put up, number one, the statistical production that he has, but we never talked about any of those guys as being MVP-caliber players.
0: Yeah, well, I'll say this. In 2013, Kaepernick, in my opinion, was an MVP-caliber player. But the thing that's different with Lamar and with Kaepernick is – Even though they're in the same scheme, it's the commitment to rushing the football. And I I think that's something that really is apparent with Greg Roman, right? And and both guys were really explosive. I think Kaepernick was a really underrated thrower of the football also, and Lamar is too. I really can't say, in my opinion, there's much of a difference as far as ability between Lamar and, and, and Kaepernick. You want to say more explosive, but I saw firsthand Colin Kaepernick run 78 yards to score a touchdown yeah. you know um I think it's just different as far as the speed if, if if you could understand what I'm saying like the the ability to hit top speed quickly Kaepernick was like a deer you know and, and it took him a bit but once he got to full speed it was over Lamar 0-60 to 60, you know like a Italian sports car
1: and we were cutting up with Dave McGinnis former head coach in the league Titans color radio analyst he was kinda of saying the same thing in that Lamar Jackson is much more of a twitchy athlete than mm-hmm. some of these other running mm-hmm. quarterbacks
0: yeah I agree and even you know with Russell Wilson the diff- Russell Wilson is probably more of a pocket guy than either one of them but Russell Wilson has uh, my, my friend uh, Emory Hunt and I we joke he reminds us of Tecmo Bowl it's, it's, a, it's an old video game where you could scramble back 30 yards and throw for a touchdown. And that's what he does, man. He just continues to scramble back. It's like Fran Tarkinson. So he's different from Lamar, but I think with Lamar was so underrated. And that's why, I don't know if you heard me ask Kenny Vaccaro about Mark Andrews on the seam route, but they kill teams with that. And it's underrated how well he places the football, but also how he is always able to use a different arm angle to get the ball in there. It's it's amazing.
1: And I think that's a good point because I think a lot of people that may not have watched this team or may not have paid attention think that this is like, I don't know, like the Harvard option offense. It's not that at all because, you know, if you do sell out completely to stop the option, you've got Marquise Brown on the outside. You've got these tight ends over the middle you have to deal with. And so I feel like in that way it's much more exotic than just, you know, classic smash mouth football, even though there is the run production that's there.
0: Yeah, it's much more exotic. And the thing that's so crazy is they could do the things that you talked about out of smash mouth football personnel packages. 13 personnel, you think three tight ends on the field, there's no way they're going to get vertical in the passing game. Well, I've seen them use four vertical routes out of 13 personnel. That's stupid. You don't you, you don't usually do that. And then even, you, you know, they're able to give uh, through shifts or motions. They could give you other like 11 personnel looks. They could give you 12 personnel obviously with, you know, with three tight ends. But the fact that you have a guy like Mark Andrews that you could move to the outside, line up on the numbers and be like a receiver, it just makes them so dynamic and so – uh, versatile.
1: Well, and to that point, you know, everybody talks about the organizational commitment to Lamar being that, but it's more than just going in on game day and saying we're going to run the option and we're going to let Lamar be a primary ball carrier. It's an entire organizational commitment. You have to draft to have the right personnel because not every team, I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs, for example, they can't run four verts out of 13 personnel.
0: Right, right. And it's it's unique the way they did that, right? Because they, they picked Hayden Hurst first. And then they they traded back into the first round. Somehow Lamar Jackson fell to 32. They grabbed him. Then in the third round, they grabbed Mark Andrews. Right? Then the next year, you get one of the best guys running between the tackles. We talked about Mm this uh, in Mark Ingram. So now that zone read has the threat where he could hand it off on the dive. So you have to account for that on the interior gaps. Or he could pull it. So guess what? You have to account for him going off, you know, uh, turning the corner. Then he could pull it and step back and hit the tight end so literally every option in that zone read is dangerous so they've done a great job and greg roman i will give him credit i'll give john harbaugh credit first because what he did greg roman was the the run game coordinator Um, marty morningweg was the offensive coordinator they offered Morningweg to be the passing game coordinator, but they wanted Roman to call the shots because they saw what he did before. And in doing that, he went back and totally reconstructed the offense around ways to showcase Lamar Jackson. And that's a credit to that coaching staff. They took a circle and put this in the circle hole instead of what most of these guys do, the square in the circle hole.
1: Let's talk a little bit about how the Titans can defend this. Because I, the way I see it, Obviously, everyone's important, and it's an assignment football. But I see three guys who are maybe more important than anyone else this week, that being Jayon Brown, Rashawn Evans, and Kenny Vaccaro mm-hmm. in terms of stopping this. Where do you stand on that, and, and how do you go about stopping this? Or I don't know that you stop it, but I think Kevin Byard had a great quote today. He said, I think with Lamar Jackson, if it's a five-yard run, you kind of clap your hand and say, okay, good job.
0: It's, that's almost the case. I, I think those guys you mentioned are crucial. And the thing is, you know, you always say know your job. Well, you have to say know your jobs mm-hmm. because when you're stuck in a situation, and I think you asked a question, it was an excellent question, about what's it like being red. I think
1: well, that, that was Kaharski. we got to give Kaharski okay. the credit for okay. that
0: okay. one. I thought I thought it was you. But, yeah, that was a great question by PK. And when you're in a situation where you have to react, to what the, the offense is doing, right? It's tough because you could make a, a, a mistake and that's gonna lead to a huge play. You know, so you have to be able to 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 read, okay, is he gonna is he gonna pull it and throw to the tight end? If he does I was supposed to control this gap, but I may have to come off and, and, and cover the tight end. So there's all kinds of jobs and things you have to be accountable, accountable. And Bayard
1: also, when he was talking, he said, and I don't think our mentality needs to necessarily be we need to make a play, it just needs to we need to make a stop. Because when you yeah. try to make a play, that's when the really bad things start to happen. Yeah,
0: when you start pressing to, to make a play, that's when it, it, it could get ugly. You know, You press to make a play, and a play gets made against you.
1: I want to talk just a little bit about this Titans offense because Mm -hmm. there's been such a 180 since that week six game against Denver. Tannehill's been great, but it hasn't just been him. Every single person on that offense has been better since then particularly on the offensive line. I mean, just generally, what is better about this Titans offense besides the fact that they have a more decisive and efficient quarterback?
0: Well, I think that offensive line is coming together. Initially, you saw a lot of issues with stunts and those type of things because they just simply weren't on the same page as far as I'm going to come off here, we're going to bump hits, I'm going to come off and I'm going to go here, and you're going to go there, and this is how we're going to switch off when they run those stunts. I think when you look at the offensive line, there's not a group in football that is more relies more upon each other mm-hmm. and is more of one unit. So Roger Saffold, right, I talked to him a few weeks ago and I asked him about Andrew Whitworth when he was in LA. And you took a veteran player and you dropped him in the, into that offense and it took a bit for them to get going, but once they did, you saw the results. And that's what's going on here. But the difference is you have a rookie that you're dropping in also, and a rookie who didn't focus on guard or tackle in college. This is the first time that he's strictly playing guard, Nate Davis. So it just took some time for them to gel, but I think they're definitely in the right spot. And, And now they're in that groove. They have that confidence and they're able to fire off the ball. This team is running the ball an awful lot. They're firing off the ball and that wears down the opposition right so the guys that they're blocking it wears them down and that's what's happening and that's
1: why I asked coach Car- Harbaugh the question I did this morning on the conference call like obviously Derek's been great Derek Henry but I mean there were times in that New England game where he's six yards past the line of scrimmage he yeah. have not been touched yet
0: and that's the thing you know you have a guy who's leading the league in yards after contact but not get in touch for, you know, like you said, five to six yards beyond the lines. That's a dangerous thing. And the Patriots knew what was coming. They couldn't stop it. I just want to see what happens this week because it seemed like, dare I say, they invited Derrick Henry to to run them up because you saw them with two post safeties and, and really focusing on stopping the passing game. But in the process of doing that, They allowed Hurricane Henry or Winter Storm Henry literally to flow through there, and you saw the results.
1: And, you know, it is interesting because I feel like for those first, especially like weeks three through six, you're sitting through these press conferences. You're in the locker room. I was almost rolling my eyes daily at, like, these cliches of we need to execute better. We need Mm -hmm. to communicate better. It's like, yeah, okay, I just think you're a bad football team. Mm -hmm. Right? They were right. (laughs) It it was all true.
0: It's funny how – much better things look when you execute. Yeah. And it it is, you're right. I mean, even I was sitting here like, all right, look, man, we need to execute. We get it, but how do you execute Uh better? You know, and it just seemed like they figured that out from everything (laughs) as a part of the team. They figured it out.
1: TD, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it.
0: No problem, man. Thank you.
1: Okay, we're going to close out the show as we always do with our Stomp the Nonsense segment. If you have a recommendation for us of, of some nonsense in the sports world, send it to us either on Facebook or Twitter. Use the hashtag Stop the Nonsense and, uh, and join in the fun. Okay, guys, uh, I guess I'll go first this week. And mine isn't anything like specific, like a specific tweet or article or anything like that. It's just sort of a general overlying nonsense. All of these people... Who, after the Titans beat the Patriots, got onto Twitter and everything, and declared that the dynasty is over? What? Okay, we're, we're talking about a team who, first of all, Tom Brady was not the problem in that game or in the season. He was throwing in a tight windows because they don't have anybody that can get open. Edelman's old, Nikhil Harris bad, and Philip Dorsett was a bust when they traded for him. No more Gronk, so the middle of the field stuff is gone. We were just talking about Sony Michelle's not very good. So Brady's not the offensive problem. Brady still has the arm strength. Brady's still fine. He'll come back next year. I don't buy that he's going anywhere else. But this defense, right, didn't they have, like, the best secondary in the NFL this year? Now, I know Devin McCourty's an impending free agent, but he'll probably go back because he did the first time even though he had big offers other places. I think the Titans probably even offered him something. Um, so, so I don't buy it for those reasons, but I also don't buy it for the fact that they were 12-4 and four this year, and they won the Super Bowl last year. So I, I just don't buy all this, the dynasty is over, the Titans ended it, no more Patriots. It's like, they were 12-4 and four this year, it was just an off year. They did the same thing, you know, uh, I mean, I, they've won the division a lot of years in a row, but it hasn't been since that Castle year, right? Like, they've had an off year every now and again, right? Yeah, every
2: decade or so, and and, (laughs) And the they went eleven and five, right? So and Mm
1: -hmm. and missed the playoffs. And I know that like, you know, everybody's getting older, and that's why it's probably easy to jump to these conclusions. But like, I feel like you all are in a lot of danger of becoming this Trent Dilfer meme again. Of they're not good anymore when like they went twelve and four. Like, come on. I mean, they're not – it's not like they're getting
3: blown out or anything. It's just they're just not necessarily close close games. They
1: lost a close game to a good team, and people are declaring that they're bad now. Yeah, and people are
3: like – on one hand, they try to slander – so here's what they do is everybody's like, if you worked under Belichick, you're not any good. And then because that narrative has gone so far that way, then now they're like, oh, I thought nobody that – Played or coach under Belichick was good. Well, look at Brian Flores and look at Vrabel, and then it gets turned back to Belichick's bad because he lost to these two other coaches who weren't that good. Like it just yeah. vacillates back and forth, and it's yeah. just people bouncing hot takes off of each other. Yeah, so that's aggravating.
2: Yeah. Okay. I'll 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 go next. Uh, man, the, our our guy Jeff Schwartz. Love what him, a guy, man. friend of the pod. Mm. Friend it. of the <laughs> pod probably I've had him muted for a long long time arch nemesis yeah. of, of the of the pot he just he's he's miserable it seems like he's a miserable human being yes. and just just I don't know what it is about him and the titans he clearly doesn't like us probably because we keep beating the his uh his former team the chiefs all the time uh he didn't bro team, right but he did too right I could be completely wrong I don't played cares? for the giants or, I can't remember I don't know. Someone confirmed confirm that. Regardless, he's a Chiefs fan because his brother plays there, so we keep beating them. Anyway, he had a couple of tweets following the Titans' win. Uh, I'll read a couple of them. If you didn't watch the Pats-Titans game and only judge the Titans' offense based on Twitter media reports, you'd think the Titans scored 45 points. They scored 14 points, by the way. Uh, Next tweet. They won because the Patriots' offense is bad. That is why. It's simple.
1: Did he not Uh, see Derrick Henry run for more yards than any back ever has against a Belichick team in the playoffs? Like, did he miss that part?
2: There are more tweets. There are more tweets. Okay. Never seen a fan base more excited for 4.8 yards per play and 14 points. Yeah, that's definitely what we're excited about, not the fact that we just beat the Patriots in the playoffs. And. The the last one. Uh, I blasted the Texans offense all game, and I said O'Brien isn't a good coach. The difference is Texans fans' media aren't celebrating their offensive output like it was so glorious. First so, of like, all, who <laughs> is celebrating like we're the best offense of all time? We're probably celebrating the fact that first, we won a playoff game, finally. Uh, actually, no, we won one two years ago. I don't know, but uh, whatever. We won a playoff game. Secondly... Dirk Henry went nuts. That's what we're celebrating. It was fantastic to watch. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. also three. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but we beat the Patriots in the playoffs on the road. That was pretty cool.
1: If the uh, if the Titans win this week, I just want uh, Tannehill to walk up to the podium after the game, like very melancholy and sad, and just wait for a reporter. What's wrong, Ryan? You just won the game. Yeah, and our yards per play wasn't very good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. If we can't appease Jeff Schwartz, might as well forfeit the match. Yeah, I mean,
1: like... Jeff Schwartz, who said that Jack Conklin, who was an all-pro, was bad.
2: Oh, yeah, remember that? Yeah. He <laughs> because his like brother that. didn't get the
3: award. That's oh, yeah, that's... 100%. Yes! Because sure, that that well, Conklin gets crying. help
1: from tight ends. Oh, so yeah. Conklin has a smart coach, so he should be punished. Thanks, Mike Malarkey. The,
3: like, this, this weird list where he, like... Ch- like, he was like, this is the list I'm working on, and it was like a little tally I was <laughs> <so>, like, how... <laughs>
1: it's like a hit list
3: i was like dude like just calm down like your brother's fine like nobody's trying to get him fired but like everything in the world is just based and mostly his, like a large part of his career is based on the fact that his brother uh, is good at football and you know and he's related to him so it that's it's very frustrating um I tried to look up, but I didn't have enough time uh, to see what he said after the Super Bowl last year, where the Patriots scored 13 points and won a Super Bowl. But I, I couldn't find anything. But I mean, I hope he had the same <laughs> just called it a complete waste. Then <laughs> because it's such a weird, like, yeah, <laughs> I-, I hate people that do that that are just like so negative. I'm so bitter that you're, yeah, I'm so bitter that y'all are happy because. I took something out of context and tried to make it negative and have a hot take. It's like, you know, do research. Like, you can't say, like, I've never been, like, I've never seen so many people excited about, like, these numbers on a sheet. Nobody cares about the numbers on the sheet. Like, we're all excited about the game we just watched and what happened in it. Like, sure, the numbers are important and give context, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if your team wins 49-0 to 0 or if your team wins you know two to three or you know what whatever weird score you can get like at the end of the day like people just remember who won the ring and in the playoffs if they win the next three and don't score more than you know 14 points on offense that's fine like it does not matter nobody will care um so that's my thoughts on jeff schwartz uh My my sob the nonsense is a little bit more specific because I just thought this was super funny. So I don't know if y'all saw this tweet. I'm pretty sure I retweeted it where uh, Antonio Brown said uh, on Twitter, in 2020, only want to play with at Tom Brady or no play. Uh, It's his exact tweet. He said that? Yeah, and verbatim he said that. And somebody quote tweeted... Uh, the name was at Easy Street Keys.
1: The, the name <laughs> was at the name was at Dr. Barry McCaughin. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's like it's like you should play for the American military. Anyway, uh, so that guy uh, said, "I'm going to clean up the language a little bit," but he said, "If the Bengals call tomorrow, you're going to be dressed like Tony the Tiger. Stop playing." And <laughs> I think it's so funny because Antonio Brown gets all this publicity. Because he's... More white women
1: 2020.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like, his whole, like, 2019 year has been, and into 2020 now, has been T.O.'s, like, 30 seconds in the driveway during crunches. Like, it's just, how can I get as much attention (laughs) on me as I possibly can as I pretend to have some big end game in mind, and then
1: his plans just crumble around him? Terrell Um, Owens was just kind of self-absorbed. He wasn't, like, clinically insane. Correct.
3: And so, like, and also, like, Terrell Owens was, a, you know, is a Hall of Fame player. Like, Antonio Brown's really good. Like, he's had a really good career. But, I mean, like, I I don't know. Like, maybe well, he gets in the Hall of Fame. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But, like, well, yeah. it just seems like the pay, the uh, Steelers always produce wide receivers yeah. that put up a billion yards.
0: Well, I will say
1: this about Antonio Brown and his Hall of Fame chances. I, I'm always very... Compartmental when it comes to the Hall of Fame, like I don't really care about your off the field stuff. If you did well on the field, you're in. Like the O.J. Simpson should have his best revoked. No, he shouldn't because he was a Hall of Fame player. Antonio Brown is a nutcase, but he's a Hall of Fame player.
3: Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't know. Like so much of that volume is just manufactured. That like it's. I'm not saying he's not great. Like, he was great, but I I just—I don't—and maybe he's in the Hall of Fame compared to some other bottom-tier receivers that got in, Uh, but I don't know. Like, this definitely tarnishes it. Like, I think it's something different because he he actually hurt the team who he was on's chances. Like, he hurt the Raiders by— Stringing him out and you know waiting as long as he could and then basically refusing to play for him as soon as the season was about to start. So, like that—that's a bad look that affects your team negatively. But we—that's well, we, that's a conversation for a whole different point. Yeah. Time. My my whole thing on this is that th- this is a cycle that we see over and over. And he'll say stupid stuff. People will cover it. He'll get a workout with a team that doesn't really want to sign him, but just kind of wants some publicity. Or they want to sign another receiver and don't want to be told, like, oh, well, you didn't try Antonio Brown. You weren't really trying hard. So they bring him in for a workout or whatever, and then they don't sign him. He freaks out, posts weird memes, and curses out the NFL, and then the whole cycle starts over again. So, like – just stop feeding into this narrative. Like, literally help to stop this nonsense.
1: Let me say this about Antonio Brown. The ultimate end game to all of this would be if this fight that he has challenged Logan Paul to actually goes through.
2: Yeah, what is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, just, uh, it's the worst. Like, I want that, that so a, bad. The two, like, worst people ever fighting. Like, get yeah, injected in my veins.
3: Yeah, I mean, I want to <laughs> see him against, like, anderson silva in his prime <laughs> like i want to see and don't like because if you're gonna put a professional athlete in the like you've got you can't just be like a but guy it's he was or... like
1: 510 190 i mean what's he gonna do in a fight
3: yeah I'm, i don't know like i'm just i'm just saying like you can't i mean greg hardy's a bad example because he's a monster like off the field and Greg also, Hardy got
1: like, kicked out of ufc because he like nearly killed someone yeah like that's the thing i'm like but he was so like
3: well-trained for being because he was just huge and like
1: yeah well that's going to do it for us uh maybe we'll be back next week for another preview episode who knows the titans are a good football team but they're playing a uh, an objectively much better one this week but as you know it's any given sunday and anything can happen so for matthias and will i'm luke reminding you and everyone else in the sports world to stop the nonsense